Okay, everyone. Great guest again today. Someone that Jens and I have known for a very long time. He had to grind to shine in this sport, and he's still doing it to this day. Our guest today, Matt White. Yenzi, so hard for me to say his name, Matt White, instead of Whitey. Isn't it? I mean, I know the man since 1997. He was my teammate in that small little team, ZVVZ Giant AIS. So we go back a long time. And yes, ever since I know him as, hey, Whitey. And now we go, oh, Mr. White, the sport director. But we all going to talk about it in a minute. Oh, yeah. There's some good stuff in here. I mean, he's been around as a very loyal domestique, stepped into the car at a very young age, and is still part of the staff of Jaco Alula to this day. So please sit back, relax, and listen to our interview with Matt White. All right, everyone, please welcome Matthew White to Bobby and Jens. Oh, thanks, guys. Glad to, glad to be here. Um, you know that was a sign of respect for me to call you Matthew because, like, I don't think I've ever called you Matthew. It's always been Whitey. So how should I or <laughs> how should I refer to you the rest of this interview? Is Whitey okay or should I go Matthew? No, no, definitely Whitey. We we go we definitely go far back enough for you to want to call me Whitey. That's for sure. Thank goodness, man. Because if you said Matthew, I think I would have said Whitey a million times. But uh, so Whitey, where are you coming from today? I mean, the season is definitely you know the sunset is setting. The season is kind of coming to an end here pretty soon. But where where are you at the moment? Yeah, I'm in the south of uh, south of Spain, uh, my my home, uh, about seventy k south of Valencia, and uh, yeah, it is coming to an end. But it, yeah, we've got rate we've got guys racing up until the twenty seventh of October. So there's some lucky travellers have got some trips out to Asia uh, coming up. But first things first, we've got a big block of racing in Italy, which I'll be off to uh, early next week. Obviously, the big one is Lombardy next Saturday, but we've, there's races before and after as well. And then that would be the official end of this season. And how much time do you get actually off? How long is your off season? I know about roughly what the riders do, but you as a um, sport director, how much time you have off? And when you start thinking about the next season with women's teams, men's team, and so on. The, st the season is still a month from, uh, from closing up, but, uh, in my role, uh, you know, across high performance and sports directing, um, I'm really busy at the moment building the calendar for 2024 already. You know, you got to, I like to get, when it, with the calendar has been partly built um, through the summer months because, you know, if you, with the acquisition of new riders, you've got to see how that fits, what you're looking for, how, where you're bolstering your roster, where, you, where where's weak, where you need to, you know, where, where are your weak points. And then building the calendar backwards with obviously your big leaders first and then uh, an array of helpers and domestiques around them. And uh, you've got to present that to your stakeholders. And then it, there's the toing and froing between the coaching group as well. So it's a, it's a pretty, uh, pretty complex process. And that won't air. That'll be the next two months pretty much until we get to our first real team together, get together at the end of, uh, at the end of November, we'll present the calendars to uh, for all the athletes uh, for the first, some guys for the whole season and some guys for the first half of the season. And where will you have that that meeting in November? 
that always seems to be tricky because guys are trying to go on vacation and they live all over the, the planet. But are you going to have a, a centralized location somewhere in, in Europe? Yeah, with the season now, uh, you know, finishing on October 27th and then starting for us down under on the 3rd of, 3rd of January, we we were, we will not be able to get all 30 athletes together. It's just not possible because by the time the season finishes, yeah, some of the guys have already gone back to Oz, uh, back to New Zealand, wherever that may be. So we, we break it up and you know, we'll have probably 15, 16 guys together Um at the end of November, we, we'll do it in Turin. We've got a um, relationship with a uh, with a, a medical clinic there, which we do all our you know fourth quarter or our fourth quarter biological tests uh, for the UCI, um, which is a really great clinic we use. And uh, we'll we'll do we'll come in there three days, get everyone together, and that's where uh, we'll sit down with the fifteen or sixteen riders face to face, go through a bit of a review of this season and what we've got expected for next year, and then. The other fourteen guys will do that over uh, over Zoom um, in that in that same sort of period, whether they're in Australia, New Zealand, or or where whichever part of the world they're in. Because these days it's really hard to get thirty guys together uh, at, at any time during the season, really. So when you do so much planning and still being at races, you travel a lot. You still work out a little bit to keep like your mental health stable or to keep your stress levels down. What do you do to relax a little bit, to refresh so you be ready for more work on the laptop, in the car, or what else comes your way? Yeah, Jens, I, Jens, I, I, I wouldn't my day without doing something. Um, I have to get out. I just have to break up the day somehow. Yeah, whether it's, yeah, you know, I've got a lot of work sneak a ride in sneak a walk in sneak a run in when i'm on the road i'll, I'll walk or run every, every day um yeah i'm not training for anything specifically running anymore or, or i haven't pinned a number on riding a bike since i retired so when i now i've got three children and and they're all into cycling obviously the oldest one is nearly 14 he's um he's getting right into it so he's at an age where i can go training go training with him unfortunately uh he'll kick my ass these days anything more than a one or two minute climb But uh, I, I enjoy getting out exercising and I, I'd go bonkers. I would go bonkers if I did more than a couple of days without getting out and doing something because one, it's, yeah, I'm phasing out of that yeah, 150 days in the car, but you know, even just sitting down working, it's good to break up the day with a walk or a run or, or if you can fit in a ride. So yeah, I, I, do, I do something in, try, try to do something every day. That's one thing I've really noticed over the years, and I think it's a very good um, new thing, is to see DSs and staff people working out because it was so easy to, to do nothing. Um, back at the beginning of my career, I remember the directors never touched, touched the bike. Swanier's mechanics, pretty much the same thing. But now you see a, a really good level of uh, at least basic fitness. And I think, Jens, you hit it on the head. I think it's... If I was in that situation again, it would be more for the mental health rather than, you know, any sort of physical preparation whatsoever. But, um, you know, to talk a little bit more about you, Whitey, you know, for our listeners and our viewers, you know, you were often working as a in service of others, which in this sport we call a, a domestique, if you will. Um, but you also won a few races. I mean, we really remember you for your positive attitude, your funny stories, just like, you know, take charge sort of guy. But you you won a couple races. Uh, one was in, in uh, the 1999 Tour de Suisse. 
uh, when you're writing for that Italian team, um, the winemaker, um, Vini, Vini Colorado, and then also in 2005 with a stage in your native tour down under. Um, I know we're getting older, but like, you know, our memories of those mem of those days have to be there still. Do you have any memories of, of those days that you got to lift your hands above your head? Yeah, yeah, pretty easy to remember when you only got a couple. But uh, now I, I think my career, I, I, I have a lot of fond memories from my career. Um, and I did, re I did enjoy you know, being there and supporting other riders, whoever that leader was. I did enjoy that. And I think that has held me in pretty good stead for my post-career uh, job. You know, I think I was someone who could relate to you know, the bigger stars or, or the young neo probes coming out of wherever they've come from and struggling to get their two feet on the ground and making a, making an inroad into their career. So I think that sort of really did help me uh, slide into my role as a sports director. And I did start this role also pretty young as well. So I, I came in as, at 33, which at the time there wasn't any directors that, that young. Um, but, uh, no, I have a lot of fond, fond memories from racing and, and living like a gypsy in Europe in, in my amateur days and, uh, and also my early professional days. I, uh, I, I wouldn't change a thing. It was, it wasn't the easiest of positions into the professional ranks for sure. But, uh, like I said, it's held me in pretty good stead for, uh, for my post-career activities. Here's a little nugget for our listeners then, uh. Whitey, see if you remember that. In 97, U.S. Pro Open Championships, we raced in Philadelphia. Well, we did win Trenton with uh, Jay Sweet. And yep. we finished the big race on Sunday. And then didn't we run up the bloody rocky stairs at midnight? I think we did. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did. We did. <laughs> did, mate. We did. We're, we're big yeah. fans of the Rocky franchise. And yep. uh, not, every weekend you get to, not every weekend you go to Philadelphia. So... Uh, Indeed. No, no, I've got plenty of fond memories racing with you, Yenzi, uh, both against you and also to, as teammates. Same here, my friend, same here. Since 97, we were teammates in 97. Yeah, when we, we had a little trip to South Africa. We went to Stellenbosch to start the preseason, and then we went, yep. came back to Europe. We came back to Europe after that and uh, and hit the roads of Europe, both in the uh, both in the aim of uh, making it into a, a world tour team at the time, which uh, yeah, you made it the, straight away the year after, and... Uh, the year after that into which was small Italian team and that was uh it was yeah it was fun times it was uh different times but uh it was fun times trying to uh crack into the uh, professional ranks wasn't it yeah it was different world back then but um yeah well i i wasn't there at this race but this i mean Whitey, you know, you, you are so well respected and loved by so many people. Like anybody that I talk to from our generation just, just loves you. But I wasn't at this race and I had Jens, I believe you were there, but I think it was Fabian Conchalera that told me this story that one year in the Tour de Suisse, there was a, <laughs> a giant hailstorm and Yep. All of a sudden, riders are just diving for cover. Guys are jumping under tractors, underneath barns. And he told me, maybe maybe it was a combination of Frank, Andy, and Fabian telling me the same story. But they're old because they're all there. They're all three of them. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm trying to paint this picture for our viewers and our listeners, but it's hailing. Guys are underneath tree limbs, kind of scattered everywhere. And then all of a sudden... Whitey, the superhero, found 
was it a kiddie pool or a barn door a or pool. a kiddie pool? It the was a kiddie pool. The other is clamshells that you put one half water, one half sand. Yes. So, so imagine this. Whitey is out there saving his fellow comrades underneath this kiddie pool <laughs> and bringing them back under, under better cover. So that is true. That whole story is true. I remember it well. It was uh, we started in we started in sunshine? It was I can't remember what part of the stage it was, but this big, pretty severe thunderstorm rolled in, and I remember it being a hot day. And then all of a sudden, the weather changed, and it was it was like golf ball size hailstones. And uh, the race organizer didn't know what to do until it got so violent that people just went off the road and were like, ducking for cover. And there was there was riders sprayed everywhere, and I I I ducked off really quickly into this house and I, and I could see guys just getting belted. Yeah. You know, golf balls getting hit everywhere, left, right, and center. And, uh, it, we're in this front yard, someone's front yard. And there was a uh, two clamps, one with, one with sand, one with water. I tipped the one out with water and then we started running out and going ferry and getting guys and popping them under the clam and put, running them back into under the, the, the veranda of this house until we rescued everyone in the vicinity. So it was pretty, it was pretty funny. But all I remember is just the, the noise on that clamshell when uh, just when getting pelted with golf ball-sized uh, hailstones. I remember it as well. Um, we had every team car has dents in there. Um, we lost a yep. window or two. Even some of the carbon frames were having a crack, yep. like literally golf size. It was unreal. Every, every rider had blue stains on the back, on the shoulders, on yep. the arms when he got hit by the golf balls. Unreal. Yeah, yeah. And the sound it made when it hit your plastic, uh, your your helmet, the noise, it was <laughs> unreal. Never seen anything like it. I'm glad we are still no. alive to tell the story. Uh, no, and I, I can't remember yet if we actually, they actually put the stage back on after the storm. Because I think from memory, it was actually quite a pretty quick storm. Like, yeah, five minutes of intense hail. But I, I don't remember the, the, can the stage being cancelled. I think it was just stopped until uh, until the storm passed and we carried on. As usual, <laughs> I, I actually I, I think they, they called the team buses back, and then I think we did drive. Really? Yeah, I think we we did cut out one big mountain. We drove around it, and then we went back out yeah. on the buses, restarted on the other side in perfect sunshine. Like you said, it was actually a nice day, just like this twenty yeah. minutes of just brutal hailstorm. But that yeah, it yeah, was yeah. just unbearable. The show must go on. The show must go on. <laughs> Indeed. You would have fit right in with uh, B.S. Christensen and our old CSC survival camps, because that that's a that's the spirit of a leader right there, and uh, <laughs> so, says a lot about you as a as an individual. But do you remember what year that was? Uh, oof, I reckon two hundred six or seven, because uh, yep. I retired in the end of seven. So one of those large. Oh, it must have been on Discovery Channel. So it must have been one one of those years. Two two hundred six yeah. or seven. Okay. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah, probably. I've got a photo. I've got. I, I got it somewhere. Of uh, there was, it's journalists that were obviously on the scene, and they took photos. And I had these ice, these got these golf ball size hailstones in my hand when they came round. Because obviously the race was put off by a certain period, and the journalists were like, yeah, you know, because there was guys with you know massive, massive welts on their back and arms or wherever they'd been hit. And uh, I haven't got a photo somewhere deep in deep in the archive of me uh, with their hands with these uh, golf ball sized uh, hailstones in my head. Jeez. Legendary status, legendary status. But you know, you, you didn't have that armchair quarterback ride to the top of the Peloton, right? You had to grind 
uh, first on like a small Aussie team with Yenzi, uh, a couple Italian teams. You know, you went to U.S. Postal, yep. but and you never got the chance to ride the Tour de France. Then there we are nope. reconning yeah, the Tour de France prologue in Liège in 2004. And all of a yep. sudden we're coming through the start finish line and there's some paramedics uh, kind of blocking our way. We're like, hey, gosh, that that little ramp thing that was hiding the cables from from the TV. Gosh, that's dangerous. And then we see you laying on the ground. Um, tell us yeah. what happened. Tell us, our listeners and our viewers, what what happened to that that day? I mean, you finally get your first start in the Tour de France. And what happened? Yeah, so it was uh, it was about yeah, I don't know nine ten o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. It must have been probably a little, little bit later, and we were staying somewhere close to Liège, and uh, we'd gone in to do a little bit of recon on the uh, on the prologue circuit, and it had been raining. I don't think it was raining at the time, and um, like you said, we were going. We pulled out of the bus, gone behind the start area, and then just as we went to go over the uh, the starting ramp. Um, there was a a, cab a cable running parallel to this. We didn't go up onto the start ramp, but we ran parallel to it. And there was a metal cable covering the uh, these television cables. And they were wet. And all I remember is, uh, I, I don't remember if I bunny hopped it, hit it. I don't remember because uh, the next thing I woke up in the H hospital. So what there is, there is, and there is footage, there is footage on the internet of that crash um, from, from some punter who was standing closely. And uh, I went out straight over the handlebars, uh, hit my head, un unconscious, woke up uh, in the H hospital, the H hospital with a broken collarbone about five hours before before the tour. Um, the team doctor, yeah, the concussion protocols didn't really exist then. Um, then they weren't that worried about the concussion. They were like, well, you've broken your collarbone. It doesn't need surgery. It was a clean break. And I'd just been picked in the actually Olympic team uh, 24 hours before for Athens, which was, I think, five or six weeks later. And the doctors and doctors said, look, you can start the tour. But remember, it was a tour that had Parve a few days into this stage. And he said, look, if you, if you start the tour, um, yeah, when you get to the Parve, yeah, you're going to you, you're gonna do it more damage than, than good. And uh, so that was that was my tour done. Um Packed up, went home. I didn't need surgery on it and uh, ended up having to train on the home trainer for the Athens Olympics and had to prove my uh, my selection, even though I'd been selected the day before, to go to the Games and uh, end up have, pulling that off uh, in Denmark and Hamburg uh, post-Tour de France. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I had to wait till the next year to ride the Tour de France. But it was, yeah, it was pretty disappointing. But um, ended up eh, part of part of his sporting career but obviously uh i tried so many times to ride the tour before and even in 201 the first year i joined postal i was actually picked for the tour and got a phone call from johan the sunday night after the national championships um, and my dad was already on his way to europe to watch that tour and just said they'd made a uh dif a difference in their selection they ended up going for one more climber over one more guy for the flat and and you know the time i think that shows uh victor hugo pena over me uh and that, that was pretty disappointing in 201. And then I had to wait you know, to 204. And then, well, actually in 99, 99, we were going to the tour as well with uh, with Vinny Calderola. And then uh, Sergei Goncha had uh, returned a, uh, a positive test for a high hematocrit in Tour of Switzerland. And they took our wild card away three weeks before. So there's been multiple times that I've missed the Tour de France uh, prior to that and just had to wait one more year.
and uh, I didn't end up riding the tour many times as a rider, but uh, obviously done the last done the last fifteen as a sports director. So then, after all these mishappenings, you do your first Tour de France. Was it at least all you expected, all you were hoping for? Was it magic for you, or just another hard job to do? Oh, I think it was a bit of everything. And I think obviously, when you wait so long for something. Um, you know, I think most riders who have the dream of turning professional, obviously the Tour de France is number one on their bucket list. And yeah, you're not a real professional until you've ridden the Tour de France in a lot of people's eyes, even though there is a lot of incredibly hard and demanding races out there on the calendar. But it, it was pretty special. It was pretty special. And um, I ended up uh, flying my mum out, who uh, only came to Europe once and still to this day, flew her out to, uh, to watch the last week of the Tour de France. And that was pretty special. Pretty special uh, for her to see me at the tour and uh, to finally uh, ride the tour as an athlete. So you finally get to do the tour. Then in 2006 and 2007, you go to the old U.S. Postal team, which at that time I believe was called Discovery Channel. And like you said, uh, after the 2007 season, you retired so young at 32 and you jumped directly into the team car with uh, Jonathan Vodders at the first iteration of that team um uh slipstream chipotle i believe it was yep yep what was the motivation because no one was doing that at that age you know you you had many more years but what was your motivation to jump into the car and start working for basically a brand new team yeah so i had not even yeah i was 32 33 obviously still moving really well part of yeah some and in those last two years some really good uh, Giro results and the classics and wherever they'd throw me in. But, uh, I had a conversation with, uh, with Dave Miller. Um, I remember it well, uh, I was up in Belgium around uh, three days of the time. And, uh, he said, uh, it, yeah, we, yeah, us all, all the Angos, we used to all catch up and in between the partner of Flanders, he said, uh, and I think we're both staying in Cortric and he said, yeah, I want to catch up for a coffee. And, uh, I said, yeah, no worries. And we went around for a coffee and, uh, we just ended up turning into a beer. Um, but, uh, he said, what do you think of the idea about becoming a sports director next year? And I was like, well, I haven't thought of it. I haven't, that hadn't crossed my mind. And, you know, back, we're talking 2007, there wasn't any real international teams uh, at the time, you know, Belgians were employing Belgium, French, French and Italy, Italians and so forth. And I said, well, why, what's the, uh, what's the idea that Mac, uh, Dave? And he said, well, you know, I've been in talks with, uh, he was still racing, obviously with Sonia Duval, I think at the time. So I've been in talks with Jonathan Vorders and, you know, he's got a small team at the moment that had been this year, they came over and did a bit of a mixed program. It started off as a junior team from Colorado and it was getting bigger and that ran into a sponsor that wanted to make the, make it into a fully fledged professional team that was based out of Europe next year. And then we got into the discussions about, you know, what the team was going to stand for, you know, where the sport was at the time. Uh, it's yeah, 2007 and yeah, at the, at the time I said, well, I can still do a couple more years as a bike rider, but I really did like the idea that Jonathan had, uh, and, and the way that the team was going to be structured and more so about the, what the team was going to stand for at the time. And, and, and I, I'm good mates with Dave and, uh, yeah, we, I said, well, who's going to be, who's going to be in the team? What will my role be? And then we started, he was already starting to build a team uh already in in spring and and get into a few people's ears and yeah there was a few guys that uh that i good mates christian vanderveld julian dean 
days uh, that we're going to that we're look we're looking at coming to the team. So we, I kept in touch with uh, with Dave, and then at the end of the Giro, I had some uh, some some contract negotiations where they wanted to continue for next year, and they needed an answer in June. And uh, yeah, after a couple of months of thinking about it, I, I decided to take that leap over the other side of the fence and uh, and sort of pursue pursue the directing role. And I th- at the time, my mentality was, I, know, I didn't have a crystal ball of how international cycling would become in the next five or six years. But I just thought, you know, it's a great opportunity to get in. And if I don't take it, someone else will. And maybe there's not that opportunity to get back into the to this side of things in, in, in the future. Little did I know about you know, all the teams that would evolve over the next few years. But I certainly had no regrets. I, um, I, I, I was sort of... It had been it had been a bit, it had been a graft that that decade before, and uh, I was excited. A change is always something it's challenging, and uh, because of my personality, I think because of my my pathway into cycling, going directly from a rider into a team car at that age was a pretty natural progression for me. It certainly had its moments and challenges in that first year, because yeah, all startup teams are clusters, uh, especially one yeah. Where Jonathan was yeah, bringing a lot of people from America up to Europe who didn't have a lot of European experience. Um, I remember my first tour of Italy with uh, with the team in 2008, and I was the only person who'd been to the Tour of Italy who was, and that was, and I, I had been there the year before as a bike rider. So there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of green people, but there was a lot of enthusiastic young staff and uh, a lot of doers, a lot of workers. And, uh, and we got the job done. And but yeah, there was a lot of teething pains, which I, there always is in those young teams. But uh, I, I, I again wouldn't change a thing because that sort of helped mould me uh, into a pretty robust. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a, a robust individual. And so you definitely helped that team to develop over some years, and then um, later you then had a big change again and went, which is almost logic, went to an Australian team, right? And you spent many years in the team with, you know, uh, Jaco, Orica, Green Edge, Mitchelton, Scott, Team Bike Exchange, and all these names. How was that? Was it just a natural progression for you? Yeah, again, look, I, I had some brilliant years, three years, yeah, with, with Christian and and uh, and Dave and Brad Wiggins was fourth in the tour and Ryder Hedgedale. We had a great group of guys, a great group of guys and a, and a lot of success. And it was it was a pretty top heavy team of old experienced guys and some young developing guys. I had, I had a ball there, and and then you know when the opportunity uh, to to be involved in uh, in yeah a brand new Australian professional team, something that had been talked about for a long time because you know by that you know by the end of my career there was a lot of Australians floating around Europe and a lot of successful Australians in the professional ranks, and we'd never had any team at all. And uh, it was it was pretty exciting to uh, to join that team from the beginning, and uh, yeah, we've we've had a lot of different names over the years, but the uh, the underlying sponsor and the underlying individual behind that is uh, Jerry Ryan, and he's uh, an incredible man, and still uh, still backing us uh, us as a team, and me as an individual to this day, and uh, we've had now I think we're in year twelve now, and we and uh, a lot of success over the years, and it's been a very fun organization and really close to my heart, one to be involved with. Yeah. Um... Your your team boss uh, should be knighted for for cycling, but like you had a little bit of experience with this because with JV he was always changing sponsors' names, uh, you know from like Jens said from from Jayco to Green Edge to Michelton Scott 
to Bike Exchange to your current uh, Jayco Alula. How is that when you have to, when, when basically the team stays the same, but the sponsors change? Is there any real effect on the, the kind of overall vision of the team when a new sponsor comes in there? Because it seems like you've had to deal with that quite a bit throughout your career. Yeah, no, uh, Bobby, because all all those companies besides Alula, uh, are that they're Jerry Ryan's. So Jayco's one of the, is a, a big caravan company, uh, which he uh, Jayco Mitchelton Bike Exchange he, he owns shares in. Uh, all those sponsors, Orica wasn't, but obviously Orica was there for five or six years. But you know, there's he's been the uh, the he's been our the founder of the team, and it's and a lot of it's been his money. So. The, the vision of the team was his to start with. And so, yeah, we've had different names, but it's been predominantly Jerry's money and Jerry's backing throughout that, throughout that decade, decade. Oh, look, we, we've, we've had it. We've had our rough patches as a lot of teams. It, yeah. Teams always change. And obviously the, the Manuela foundation attempted buy out, yeah, to put a bit of ruffles through a few different people and COVID. And yeah, we, we all took pay cuts for a, a, a big period of, uh, of 2020 and, came out the other side and I've had a rough old year the year after and, and are on the way back, but, uh, it's, it's professional sport. You've got to adapt and teams don't always stay the same. And you've always got to be on the front foot and thinking of where the next champion comes from and adapting tactics, training techniques, equipment, you name it, you've always got to be evolving. And, uh, so that's, that's been one, one thing that we've, uh, we always had to do. And, and Jerry's always been really, really supportive with that. We'll be back after this short break. Now back to our chat with Whitey. In all these years as a bike rider and as um, DS, maybe one example each. What was the moment where you went, wow, that worked out perfectly? And what was the moment where you go, holy smokes, that went ballistic? You have like one example each for us? Ooh, the best one uh, went well. The, the 2013 Tour de France, uh, when we started in Corsica. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I love to do a little bit of recon uh, and check out these stages. And I think a lot of teams do it a lot more commonly now, but I've been doing it for 13 years. And I, if When we have big targets, or when I see a, a course profile of a Giro or a Tour or a Welter, I'll go there in person and, and, and spend a few days in that, in, the, in that area and really really understand the course demands. And I remember going to, to Corsica in March, uh, in 2013 and looking at the stages on the island there. And then looking at the, the team time trial in Nice, which is a pretty straightforward one on the promenade there, putting a team together and just being able to, uh, you know, to, to pull off that stage with Simon Gerrans, uh, and then to win the team's time trial the next day and, and take the yellow Jersey. That was one of those moments where like, you know, when you, when you dream something and you envision something happening, it comes off. Uh, and to win, we won the team side trial by under one second to to quick step and for Simon to win the stage the day before and to, for yeah, in our second year of, as a team to wear the yellow jersey, take the yellow jersey and have it on our shoulders for five or six days. That was pretty special, uh, pretty special moment. And uh, and the other one is like about going ballistic. Oh well, I think it's probably sometime in the last two years. Anytime, pretty much in the last two years, where, where since Vanderpool, Van Art, and those guys have entered the sport, um, <laughs> the uh, 
the racing, yeah, you know, there's been times, you know, for example, this year at the Tour de France where with some of the, the way the jumbo is ridden during the Tour de France and being aggressive with the yellow jersey on, you know, you wouldn't have seen that that many years ago. And just thinking, you know, those guys still chasing stage wins uh, when they've got the yellow jersey with other riders. You know, you're just thinking, yeah, that's this. It hasn't it had not been the norm until very recently, and or you know, final starting 100k from the finish, or you know, breaks taking 100k to go, and kilometers of attacking to go. So cycling has changed quickly, but these, especially in these last three or four years. Uh, that is is very obvious, at least here from my couch or my my computer screen. I mean, the I'm just blown away on how much it has changed, and I. I don't really know if riders from our generation can kind of explain it, but these riders are getting better and better, faster and faster, more consistent, more consistent. Um, but we've asked this question to a few of our guests, and I'd be curious about your opinion on what is driving this new sport of cycling that I, for one, don't fully understand. Yeah, I think there's definitely a few facets involved there. I think that the first one is the the age of the athletes. In general, it's younger. Uh, why is that happening? I think because young kids are getting exposed to best practice at an earlier age. I think, yeah. You know, what were we doing when we were 14, 15, 16 years of age? Uh, there's probably not too much resemblance to a lot what a lot of these kids are doing now um, or even as juniors. So I think... Yeah, we had fun in that period. We were, we were training, we are learning how to race bikes, we were experimenting, whereas I think there's a lot of a lot of very serious kids earlier uh, who are also learning about training. Um, they're not wasting their time on their bike. I think they're doing a lot more specific training. They're exposed to really good nutritional habits, psychology, uh, equipment. So everything is just getting fast-tracked. So the, the general age of the bunch is uh is getting younger uh i think there's a there's a different type of respect in the bunch these days or lack of um due to that as well i think that there's a lot of young guys don't fear anybody uh there's that that hierarchy that used to exist in professional cycling doesn't exist i think uh which for some things i think that's good but i think and then COVID, i think the COVID years uh, people came out of COVID and it seemed like people were just desperate at every race. And then that compiling with the, the, the points battle, uh, that you now there's a couple of teams that have sold their sponsors. They're going to be world number one. There's the, at the other end of the scale, there's a relegation battle. You know, we're in the last 25 years of professional cycling, no one had ever been relegated to a second division. So there's been two battles at the top end of the bottom end. And all those things put together has just created a different type of race. And uh, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling watching it from the team car. It is so aggressive, and it is just a very different style of racing in most races. And I think you see that at the Tour, but it's also that is sort of filtering down into all the races. And it won't be long before uh, the, every race is just like an FPT, FPT test and until, until people blow and can't go any longer. No, it's, it's a very, very different style of racing. I have to agree. I mean, if you look at uh, Primoz Roglic this year, the only race he didn't win was the Vuelta because he had to give it kind of to his teammate. He won, I think, uh, the, the Basque Country and two stages or Romandie and two stages. Like every race he entered, he won. 
that is sort of like unheard of that the same rider can keep the shape, you know, all year long. It is definitely different. Um, you think the team budgets have something to, to do with it? And just for our listeners to understand, what do you think is the difference between, let's say, the team with the highest budget and the team with the lowest budget? How much is the difference in between? Uh, probably double. I would think that I would think your team's kicking around in the lower end of the world tour, or oh, definitely good continental pro teams, probably 15 to 17 million. And uh, yeah. I know our budget. No one knows. We no one knows the exact budgets of other teams. Yeah, you know, it's not public knowledge. But you know, there's a lot of talk there that some of the top teams are thirty to thirty-five million, um, which is I would think even even higher uh, for some of these teams. Just and a lot of that has gone into it's gone into servicing for sure. Um, yeah, you know, gone to the day where training camps you'd go up there. Yeah, a couple of riders would go up to altitude on the road and kick around there for three weeks. Yeah, you know, people go up there with chefs and masseurs and physios and mechanics and sports directors and coaches and you know it's a pretty big operation those operations are very costly um but also i think you you can see that there's a lot of depth in a lot of rosters and yeah when you've got teams capable of running one two three in a grand tour or you know dominating races as as some teams have been doing a lot of that is going to ride a roster when you can when you can buy better quality riders you can expect better quality results you know but okay, let's say you're in the middle or the at least the three quarter high part of um, you know the teams teams budgets, right? You're not going to be able to go out yep. and pay one guy five million, another guy four million, another guy three million, and four others one million, right? No. So when you're signing no. new riders these days, you just said that earlier in the podcast that you have 29 guys, you have one more spot. When you're signing riders these days, what characteristics are you looking for knowing that you don't have the budget to get the dead ringer? Well, there's a couple of ways. One is is creating a talent pathway. Uh, so obviously next year we've got a, an agreement there with Axel Merckx and Axion, and I think that's a real good initiative from our behalf um, to get an earlier eye on younger talent. You now, it's three years ago, I was not not looking at junior cycling. And now I'm looking at junior cycling. <laughs> um, th that's that's in three years. So look, you're looking at juniors. Yeah, before you were looking at good under-23s, and now you're looking at juniors because yeah, you're looking at to put the best juniors into under-23s. And I think the reason we are doing is that is because some teams are doing it. And if you don't do it, you are getting, you are not going to get your eyes or eyes on the best talent. So that's one part of it, um, is creating a pathway for young people in your organization. The other one is, well, which I'm personally looking for, is if you haven't got the budget, is you're looking at the biggest teams in the world and you're looking at, you, you can't give everyone an opportunity in some of those big teams. This is too much talent. This is too much talent. So you've got to keep your ear to the ground, to look at the rosters, have a look at who's missing out on grand tours, but is clearly talented enough. And then you're using that money ball sort of scenario where you're getting in, you're buying someone who's just off the radar there who that maybe a team hasn't gelled with that team for whatever reason. Do a little bit of research of why it hasn't gelled uh, and then get them and offer them leadership, offer them more opportunities at your roster, uh, which they haven't got at an Ineos, at a Jumbo, at a, at a UAE. So they're the sort of uh, areas that we're looking at there. And then there's the other area, which is pretty unfortunate, is... These days, if you, I think what the trend that I've seen over the last couple of years is that 
there's a lot more young athletes getting a chance to turn professional, but there's also teams are also becoming a lot more cutthroat. And I think there's, you know, not everyone develops at the same speed. And that, you know, now if you haven't got a professional contract by the time you're 21, 22, yeah, it's very hard then to crack into the world tour ranks at an older age. And you know, some, not everyone's a superstar Duke, not everyone's a superstar 19, 20 year old. And yeah, that that's a little bit harder to find, but there, there is guys out there who just mature a little bit slower and you've got to be looking at those guys. Yeah. Maybe that, maybe that guy went to university. Maybe that guy was working for a couple of years. Maybe he had some injury and, and didn't get that opportunity as a, as a, as a good under 23, but he's performing now. So yeah, it, it, it's tricky, but there's some, there's some rough diamonds in, in the, in the slower developers path as well. Um, before I come to my next question, Whitey, maybe I did find a moment where things go ballistic. You go, oh my God. Basically, the week you described in the Tour de France in Corsica, what did happen to your team bus? Yes, it got stuck underneath the finish <laughs> banner. That is probably one of these moments where you go, oh, I didn't see that coming, right? That didn't work out to plan. But you all no, solved no. it and it's another legendary no, no. status. No, no. So what what happened that day was uh, obviously I was in car one concentrating on the race, and we had uh, our hotel was five hundred meters from the finish line. And uh, yeah, as a general rule, you always send bus to the finish line. But I thought, ah, oh, you know, it's Tour de France. We we'll get the get the guys back to the hotel quick, smart. And the the massage therapist had rung and said, look, it's five hundred meters away. It's real easy for the guys to get back to the back to the hotel. And so in case, instead of having the bus there for nothing. He said, okay, just park the bus at the hotel. And then uh, our sponsor, Jerry, had uh, arrived uh, with the, with a posse of people there. And obviously he said, well, where's the team bus? And we said, and he rang someone else in car two and said, oh, look, oh, the team bus at the hotel 500 meters away. And, and Jerry said, no, no, I uh, bring the bus down. Bring the bus down to the finish. So it, the bus had already gone to the hotel. And uh, so we rang the bus driver. I didn't. I, didn't, I was unaware of what had happened. And uh, the bus driver then proceeded to go back onto the uh, the course uh, at two, three, two or three kilometers from the from the finish, and come back around and go through the start area because that was the only way he'd get to the to the hotel. And obviously, at, at all the points before, the buses had gone through thirty or forty minutes before, and he was on his own. But he got waved through. Come on, in you come, in you come. So he gone past all these checkpoints and got to the uh, the finish line, but. That gantry, they 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 raise and lower that gantry for the for the bus heights, and because they had uh, presumed that all twenty one buses had gone through, they lowered the gantry, and whoever was on the finish line had waved him through, and so he went through there, and uh, and got the bus wedged underneath the gantry, uh, maybe thirty minutes before the race was due to arrive, and then the first thing I'd heard about it was actually on race radio, and uh, that. That a bus had a bus had wedged under the gantry, and that we were going to stop the race at three kilometres from the finish. And I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, "What's this?" And then I heard it was our bus, and I was, "Oh," <laughs> and uh, and so, firstly, we we're telling the guys, "Okay, guys, the race is going to stop at the three k to go banner. It's good. That's where the finish line is." And it had it was quickly looking back at the yeah three k to go, what what the running was going to look like because we had Matt Goss as a sprinter and how we we're going to we had a plan for what the normal finish line was. And, uh, and then 10 minutes later, we, I was totally unaware of what was going on on the finish line without letting the air out of the tires of the bus and, 
and jacking up the the gantry so the budge could get unwedged. And then the next thing I heard is, no, it's back to the normal finish line. So, all right, guys, the uh, back uh, the bus. And I didn't tell the, the guys what had happened. Um, I said, all right, guys, back to back to plan A. Uh, we approached the final as we did as, as planned this morning. Back to the finish line. Copy, copy. And uh, anyway, we went through the stage. There was a crash on the finish line and, and Gossie didn't end up doing anything. But we arrived at the finish line to this massive media storm of obviously what had happened. And uh, yeah, it was... Uh, it was it was stressful at the time. Um, the next day, uh, there was newspapers around the world with pictures of our bus wedged under the finish line, and the people from Vitel, who sponsored the finish line, personally thanked us. <laughs> they got more publicity from from photos. There was there was photos in the the uh, the Washington Express and, and all these all these uh, papers that would not would not put a cycling on their in their in their papers because of the the scandal. And actually, our spot and Jerry. Jerry said, "Oh, look! If we can't win, it's good to get uh, any publicity. Is good publicity, and uh, and uh, then we end up winning the next day anyway. So uh, no, it was uh, it was a pretty uh, pretty hectic forty eight hours, that's for sure." So um, yeah, my question would be, uh, Riley, now that we have a relegation system, so of course you're mainly looking forward to improve the team to become better, bigger, and win more, but it looked like that one or two teams were they were almost surprised by the relegation system when oh actually it's in two months you have a plan uh, for that as well or you don't consider this at all the first year is almost done is i believe two more years to go you consider that yep. it just a little bit or not at all yeah so it was actually implemented in 2020 so the the policy was made in 2020 that the end of 2023 uh sorry uh yeah end of 22 that the top 18 teams would be in. Okay. So it was in yeah, 2020, there was a lot going on. So I don't think, I don't think any teams were really looking at it in 2020. Uh, basically, because if you look at the history of cycling in the last 10 or 15 years, we struggled to actually have 18 teams in the world tour because yeah, the sponsors would pull out and yeah, we've, we've had more teams than, than wanted to come in. So 2020, and we've always been a, a, a team that, because of our you know, our primary sponsors being Australian in the past, you know, we are not committed to go to any small races in France as all the French teams do, or Belgium, or, or wherever that may be. So we had the luxury of really um, uh, picking a race schedule that just was purely for p sporting performance. So you know, we, we traditionally did the least amount of race days than any World Tour team because we had no pressure from our sponsors to do small races. So... We're at a little bit of a disadvantage, but we'd always been a successful team. And yeah, 2020 uh, hit us pretty hard there. Um, and then 2021, we, with the with the, the the pay cuts and the Manuela Foundation stuff, and we struggled in 2021. So we did find ourselves in at the back end of uh, the points in 20 in 2022. We we did adjust in 2022 and 2023. We just added more races, and um, we ended up finishing 16th out of out of uh, the 20 teams there and survived the. Um, survive the relegation but look I'm, I'm not a big fan of the way the system is set up um and it, it it really encourages teams with huge budgets just to go to every race I, I think the system when you look at what jumbo have done this year for the and yeah the, to win all three grand tours and to go one two three in the welter and for them still not to be number one it just shows that you know where the points are coming from yeah and, and this has also changed as well. Is you know we we finished as high as fourth in the ranking, I think, two thousand and eighteen, 
But in 2018, it was it was your, only your top five riders. And there was only world tour races that counted. So now every single UCI race has a value. And there's been a bit of debate. Yeah, you know, And I think they haven't changed the point system for the good for this year. But before, uh, you know, if you finished fifth, as you finished fifth on a stage of the Tour de France, it was worth five points. We could go to some shitty race in Belgium or France that no one was at and it was worth 100. So the point system was pretty whack. I think they, they definitely improved it now. But, you know, it, it encourages, for me, mediocrity. You know, you know you, who cares what your 15th to 20th rider points they're getting? Or even your, your, your second 10. And it was, the, first it was your first five, then it was your top eight. Now it's your top 20 rider. So I'm not a big fan of the way the points system is structured. Um, because also, your points, back in the day when we, we, we had a point system 15, 20 years ago, you could actually take your points elsewhere. And you, you can't take your points, points elsewhere as well. So if you're if you're on the tra- if you're transferring teams, you, you, the points are valid for this year. So I think I, I'm not a big fan of the way the point system is structured. Uh, that that just reminds me of something that David Miller once told me back in like 1999. He came into the room after winning uh, Circuit de la Sarthe or something and goes, "Points means prizes because back then UCI points when they were UCI points." Yeah. Teams were offering up to a thousand dollars a UCI point, so guys started adjusting yep. their race program mm-hmm. to score points, yep. not necessarily to win, <laughs> to win races. So I have a question: If you in, in 2025, when you know if your team is in a situation where you risk relegation, and you don't believe you you have three sprinters or three guys that can perform. Uh, let's say sprinters, right? Instead of doing a huge all-in, a la Matt Heyman used to do lead-out train, and having guys pull off one by one, would it be? Would it ever? And you already kind of mentioned this because of the mediocrity thing. Would you ever consider saying this sprinter stays on this guy's competitor's wheel, this sprinter stays on this competitor's wheel, and okay, we may get third, fifth, and ninth. But that's more points than if we try to win and don't lose. I personally would not. I personally would not. But but I know for a fact that is already in team tactics last year. One hundred percent. Wow. One hundred percent. There was teams there, and teams who missed the relegation, teams who made the relegation. They they were one. They were targeting small races where points were easy, and two, they were encouraging to have well. A lot of the French teams, that's how they roll anyway. But um, they uh, they were happy. They, they were happy to have they were happy to have three guys in the top ten finishing fourth, seventh, and ninth. That, that, and I know for a fact that was in team meetings last year. Wow! So points are crazy important in these days. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and well, so it, it is to certain. It, it depends what you've sold your sponsor. Yeah, if you've sold your sponsor, we're going to be world number one. That's one thing. Yeah, who, if you're not world number one, who cares where you are? maybe you've sold your sponsor, we're going to be top 10 in the world. I don't know. It depends what your sponsor expects from you. But I think now that the big battle is, obviously, when you when teams are signing their sponsorship deals, it's on the well, it's on the proviso that you are a world tour team and that you, which guarantees your sponsor exposure in all the big races. So if you, if you, I know for us last year, our, our sponsorship deals, yeah, a lot of our sponsors could have walked or they could have lowered considerably their 
their financial uh, contributions to us if we were relegated to a Conti Pro team. So, yeah, it was a, there was a lot of pressure last year to to make sure we made the 18. And yeah, we're sitting, I think, 14th or 13th at the moment. Um, but the, well, there's already a big gap between 18th, 19th, 20th. Um, I think three, more than three or 4,000 points after year one. So those teams outside the 18, which I think it's Arkea, Astana, and Unox, um, they've got a lot of work to do to get back in there for 2020, uh, for 2025. Because, you know, it, I know last year playing catch-up is not easy. And then playing catch-up on a Conti team is not the most attractive place to be neither. And then you are up to the mercy of organisers to get race starts. So if you're behind the eight ball from year one, it's going to be a hard grind for um, for those teams to get back into that top 18, especially with they're going to finish off 2023 to three to 4,000 points behind. Jeez. I mean, and we wonder why we kind of struggle sometimes with viewers understanding our sport, right? Like, wait, I thought this, you guys said this was a team sport and there's guys chasing each other down. There's guys dropping their leader. There's guys that are, you know, doing, doing all these crazy tactics, Pretty, pretty interesting, but I have, I have one last final question from my part. Um, someone wants to come into the sport with a huge budget. Let's say 40 million bucks over three years. In my opinion, or to my knowledge, you got two choices, right? Start slow and work your way up through the relegation system and get promoted, or you can outright buy a world tour license from one of the teams that maybe didn't find a sponsor. Um, is this right? And if so, can you kind of talk me through that process a little bit? Yeah, no, you're spot on there, Bobby. Um, so yeah. Uh, and I, and I don't officially know the, the nitty gritty of, uh, well, I remember what it was two or three years ago, because obviously we're not, we're not a startup team, but, I know you have to be at the in the Conti level, Conti Pro level first. So there's no, you cannot start as a World Tour team like like we did, like Ineos did, like BNC did. Um, that's not possible anymore. So yeah, the only way to come in if you have an unlimited budget is to either sponsor a a World Tour and a pre-existing World Tour team, join a move, which still like there's a couple going on at the moment, um, or one at least. Um, uh, or do it the slow way, which is going to be hard, as as you know, X have done and have Tudor Tudor have done. Is yeah, they've they've created good programs uh, in in with at the Conti level. They had some yeah, they see the sponsoring races. They're getting their foot indoors, um, yeah, in certain countries, and they're developing a core group of athletes that they're hoping in three years' time have enough points to um to make their way up to the World Tour, but. Again, it's it's going to be hard because and, and they're two they're two teams that have done really well this year. Two examples, you know, X and, and Tudor, they've got some great riders. And uh, but when you're competing against well established world tour teams, and the way the point system is set up, where your top twenty athletes count, um, it, it's really hard because you you're going to have to spend big to get a uh, a prolific points winner on your roster. And maybe that's not the most attractive place to be to go into the Conti to a Conti level. You know, most most world tour athletes or most athletes who are that prolific winners are happy to stay in a world tour outlet and don't want to go back to a second tier team and hope to get a ride in the Tour de France, hope to get a ride in the Giro, or hope to get a ride in the Classics. So 
um, yeah, I, I think I, I get relegation, but what I don't get is I think our second tier of cycling doesn't, I don't know, it's, yeah, three years is, it's not, it's, okay, it's not year to year like football, which is good because our, our, our sport is cutthroat enough because, you know, at the end of the day, we're reliant 100% on sponsorship. Yeah, if, our, if a sponsor walks, you can't find a new one, the team is stopped. It doesn't matter if you've got a license for three years. Yeah, you know, we we are ninety percent relying on on sponsorship. So, in the business model, I don't think is the is the best one for our sport. And until we're getting television revenue or some other form of revenue into the sport, it's nothing's going to change. We're going to go round and round in circles. That we are totally relying on sponsorship, and uh, that's fine if you've got money. But this, the the problem I see moving forward is, you know, we've got these super teams at the moment with incredibly large budgets, and it's just making it harder for uh, for average teams to compete. Because, um, you know, again, 70% of that money is going into rider rosters. And if you've got the ability to buy superstars, you can win bigger races and attract more sponsors and, and dominate the races as some teams are doing. So, yeah, it's 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 a tricky period. But I think uh, the way the sport is seen on television, the way the racing has been incredible over the last couple of years, but on the business side of things, it's it's been challenging and will continue to be challenging. So what what would you change if you would have the magic touch for a minute? Well, what would you change if you would be Bruce Almighty? You got any idea, uh, something that make everybody happy? Or, you know, I don't know, because we ask, we often talk about it, how we can make cycling more stable, you know, less in yeah. less depending on a single sponsor. What do you think? What would be an, an, an option? Yeah, I think there's a few facets there, Jens, that we could improve. I think number one, and, and people do forget this, you know, in American professional sport, there's a salary cap. And I think a degree of a salary cap in cycling would definitely work. Um, I know it's tricky because, you know, when, if you're playing in the NBA, you're living in the America, you're getting paid out of America and you, you, you fall under American employment rule. Whereas, you know, we, in Europe, we are racing, you know, there's 20, there's 18 world tour teams registered in probably 15 different countries. And you have riders from 15 to 16 nations inside your team living in different places. So there is some complications around employment, different EU employment rules. But I really believe I'm a really big fan of a salary cap in cycling. And now, what does that salary cap look like? You can we can make it what what we want it to look like. You know, whether that's a cap of so many million dollars, and that each world tour team can have two athletes outside the cap, for example. So if it's $20 million is a salary cap, but if you've got a bigger budget than $20 million, you can have Walt Van Aert and, and Vindegaard on top of that. Uh, that would that would definitely level the playing field. That you know, that It wouldn't allow the three or four big teams to have such depth, and the depth could be uh, could be shared amongst the 18 teams. And that, I think that would definitely help. Um, the other one is, yeah, well, the million-dollar question is television revenue. And, you know, there's only a few organizations in the world that are making really making money out of the sport. And, uh, I know they're sharing a little bit with us, but it's you know, a, a million or two here and there would certainly go, go far, uh, to, to just increase the, the sustainability of, of the, of budgets, you know? And yeah, because then they merchandise is small television revenues as a no brainer. Uh, but I think salary uh, for me, uh, could be a real game changer for our sport because, uh, I don't think we need to be running budgets of 30 to 40 million in our sport. I just don't think that's sustainable. Um, I don't think, I, yeah, I just don't think it's sustainable moving forward because 
you get to have the haves and the have nots. And you know, if you're in the haves, well, that's, that's great. But at the end of the day, we want to see the sport thrive for a long time. And I think, um, the, the, the gap between the haves and the haves not is, is the biggest it's ever been in professional cycling. Well, Whitey, you were a straight shooter when you were a bike racer, a director, and then also as our guest today, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's, it's great to catch up with you. Number one, but also just, just great to hear, you know, somebody that's in it right now, knee deep in the trenches that has that, uh, that very good outlook. And hopefully we can make a lot of changes and, and have this sport be as successful as we want it to be. But thank you again for coming on Bobby and Jens today. No, a pleasure, gentlemen. A pleasure. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Matt for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Please don't forget to give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a value production in association with Shock Giraffe. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Payne. Remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading to the Outside Watch YouTube channel. Get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Facebook. Just head to at Bobby and Jens and give us a follow. Matt told us about some extreme weather at the Tour de Suisse, but what's the most extreme weather you have encountered on your bike?